0: to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's MyFlexLearning.com slash BE. Welcome to the Cybertraps Podcast, I'm Jethro Jones, coming to you from Washington, host of the podcast, Transformative Principal, author of the book, School X, and of the forthcoming book, How to Be a Transformative Principal. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education.
1: Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cyber Traps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyber Ethical Kids, and Cyber Traps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices.
0: Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. For more information or to donate to our work, please visit centerforcyberethics.org.
1: The Cybertraps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyber Ethics, a 501c3 independent nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force. We accomplish this through research, curricular development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. Well, greetings, Jethro.
0: Greetings, I am so excited for our guest today. We've been trying to connect with him and get him on our show for literally months, and I am very excited to have him here today. Al Kingsley, he is the CEO of NetSupport and also serves as the chair of two multi-academy trusts and a local school governor's leadership group in the UK. Al is a sought-after speaker and popular podcaster. His book, My Secret Ed Tech Diary, is not only a walkthrough of his 30-year history in education, but also expresses a new way of thinking about technology in education. Al,
2: welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. Hello, hello. Lovely to be here. I thought I was going to be quite chuffed about talking about the fact that I've managed to write a book and then you good folks have completely trumped me having done dozens of books. So I'm feeling quite inadequate before we start our conversation.
0: Yeah, well, and and Fred starts out saying he's the author of 10 books and so I always have this imposter syndrome. Like, am I ever going to catch up to him? I don't think so. No.
1: It's, well, a, it's, a, it's a sickness, Al. Don't, don't aspire yeah. it. <laughs>
2: I should be very humble with one.
1: <laughs> yeah. oh, well, it is it is great to have you here. Clearly, you're doing all kinds of fun work in the podcast space and in the ed tech space. So we appreciate your
2: insights and in all of that. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. Yeah. So
0: I want to start talking. So Support is um, a company that provides IT services to schools in the United States and in the UK and probably all over the world.
2: Is that correct? We currently support just over 130 countries around the world with our technology. Um, We're about 18 million users. We're a software developer. Lots of it is built around, you won't be surprised to hear, co-production with educators around the world. Uh, But yeah, we provide tools from managing the IT estate to keeping kids safe online to helping collaborate and facilitate interaction in the classroom. Yeah. So
0: you, you've got so much wisdom and experience and been doing this for so long that this this new wave of technology that everybody has adopted because of COVID is something that you were prepared for. So how do we, what do we do with all this technology we've invested in because of the pandemic and how do we use it in a smart way? What would be your advice to
2: people who have just adopted tons of technology they didn't have before? Goodness, right. Well, I'm assuming this is a three-hour recording, so (laughs) let's start at the beginning. Everybody's sitting comfortably. (laughs) Uh, It it sounds kind of humorous in a way, but sometimes there's a kind of a checklist that some schools go through, which is we've got the kit, check, we're one step further or we're doing things better. And and the reality is, you know, the technology is just a stepping stone. It's actually about what you do with it that really is the big impact. And we're very used to, in in schools, measuring um, impact fundamentally when we're trying to measure anything. And often we align that very explicitly with student outcomes, measures of progress or attainment. And that's kind of cool. But actually, when we start thinking about what we've been doing over the last 18 months, we're also talking about all these other measures like well being, like efficiency of time, by having the right tools to make the, the job of being a teacher more accessible, we're looking at the bigger picture of staff retention because that's one of the biggest challenges we face in many of our schools. So part of this is about redefining what our measures of impact are. because not all things are going to be measured in terms of this academic year. But I always start by saying, um, because first and foremost, no two schools are the same, different cohorts of, of young people, different cohorts of teachers who will all be on their own journey with their own digital confidence, shall we say, that we apply the number one skill of all educators which is reflective practice actually looking at what we've already got what we've had before and what has and hasn't worked well Uh, and that's to kind of start by saying actually that the journey to successful edtech adoption isn't about getting a device in every child's hand It's about knowing with the kit you already had, how effectively it was being used, how regularly it was being used, uh, whether our students were confident using it as well as our staff being confident with it. So if we start by reflecting back and say, "Well, whether we want to reflect back six months or three years, what technology is deployed in this school? How do we actually know whether it's being used consistently and regularly and actually achieving a purpose. Is it just looking shiny or is it adding value? And sometimes we start by just recognising, look, these devices are only turned on for an hour a week. They really aren't being very effective. We need to redeploy them elsewhere. Or it might be that they're being turned on, but they're really just being used as a surface rather than actually for enriching teaching and learning. And part of the reason why that's important to know is because one of the biggest risks we've got right now is the natural default to kind of go back to the way it was before. And suddenly this huge investment in technology, we suddenly lose all that muscle memory. We stop using it every day. If teachers aren't confident that it's going to fire up and behave the way that we expect, what's going to happen? Well, each week you'll find it's used in slightly less and less lessons. And over a period of months, suddenly it will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. You use it less, you have less confidence in it. The kit doesn't remain up to date. And so it becomes a bit of a cycle. So I think when we're looking at reflecting and saying, what do we want to 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 make sure we get the most out of it is firstly have an understanding of what we're trying to achieve. Secondly, be realistic and flexible in terms of how do we measure impact? How do we actually know it's making a difference in teaching and learning? And in some cases, it might be more about actually the breadth or the level of engagement from some of our cohorts of students, that technology provides a different way of of attracting and engaging them that, that we've struggled with before. Then beyond that, I think it's a case of saying, well, actually, how do we maintain, make sure this is sustainable or, you know, to use the right term, embedded? And I think the embedded part is really about, and I always have to remember to lose the continuous part, which is a very English term, but the professional development, the PD, which is we're in a natural kind of cycle normally, and it's not unique to education. If we kind of have some inset at the start of the academic year. And then it's off you go. And I always liken it to your international soccer team having training at the very beginning of the season and then nothing following on. The reality is, as well as that inset, what we're really trying to do and and the schools that are most effective are the ones that can actually build in that professional development. And that doesn't mean specialist people coming in each week to provide training or tips and advice. Lots of it can just be about connecting up staff across your school or your school district um, identifying the flag bearers. Who are the go-to people that have confidence in a particular tool? Um, because there's a natural persuasion, I think, for all of us, that if we think everybody else is comfortable using something, we're less inclined to put our hand up and say, but actually, I'm struggling. Yeah. But if we kind mm-hmm. of take the, the other approach strategically that says, if you've got any questions about Teams, then Billy or Freddie are go-to people. And if you've got any questions about Curriculum App Y, then go and see Sarah or Jane very quickly, you kind of build that network where there's an encouragement for people to actually reach out and say, I'm I'm struggling a bit with this. And then on top of that, we've kind of learned this over the last 18 months with our learners. We've all been talking about how with the range of online tools and blended learning, as well as that debate and that blend between synchronous and asynchronous, let's make sure we use the tools to record nice, you know, 10, 15 minute exemplars that we can share with our students and they can consume at a time that suits them. And that helps with multi-children in a single device household and so on. And then it's like, well, actually, the same rules apply with our staff. Can't we get those flag bearers, the people with most confidence, to be sharing those 10, 15-minute exemplars of how to get the most out of certain tools or how to do the basics in certain tools that staff who are less confident can consume at a time that suits them? But there is an obligation on leadership to start that expectation, to kind of set the foundations, sometimes it's about finding and setting the opportunity for time for that to be done. Because often all these different things, there's the assumption is, well, it'll be done after school, in your free time. Whereas actually, if we could foster red it- red free been, <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So that's what happens. What we do is we say, well, we're trying to support our staff with all these tools, but we haven't really supported them because we've given them this whole raft of new things to learn and to build proficiency in and to plan around that they didn't have to do before on top of everything else. And mm-hmm. so if we want things to be embedded, we kind of need to stop the idea that the role of EdTech is some kind of add-on, it's some kind of extra bit, it's actually part of the core foundations it, and it, it needs to therefore be scheduled in that same time
1: zone. I I, I think that's, that's a hugely important point. I mean, the metaphor that immediately springs to mind is our school administrators supporting the foundations of educators or are they simply pressing down on them Mm. with more and more weight and it seems to me you know the successful schools will do the former and the ones that struggle will do the latter because teachers are under such stress these days
2: absolutely I I often use it and it's not my own but it's one I, I heard somebody say and I thought you know that really resonates with me think of a teacher as a glass full of water before you pour something extra in like edtech and new tools you've got to pour something out you've mm. got to always be mindful of that finite capacity
1: and, and it just, can't be just, their personal life that you're pouring out right. exactly
2: <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly but we're all very good at hiding that pressure you know we all yes. want to convey our ability to we can manage we can cope we're all taking one for the team but the reality is what are we moving towards and when we think strategically in a school, we're always thinking longer term. It's why I think back to that staff retention. You know, We can keep heaping short-term pressure on staff, but in the long-term, all we're gonna do is lose the most experienced and capable staff from our team, and it'll cost us far more to try and replace that. So thinking about that is where we need to move CPD to being some kind of short-term, we're doing you a favor with a couple of hours, to being, this is fundamental in the same way as we would expect you know, to have a, a doctor keep being retrained on medical techniques, not just you've heard it once and hang on to it. Yeah. So I, one of the things you said is re-
0: evaluating whether or not the technology is being used effectively and before you can evaluate whether or not it's being used effectively, you have to first establish what effective looks like, right? So Indeed. if you are using um, the, the game Kahoot for two hours per day in your classroom, That's not a good use because Kahoot! is not designed to be a constant, you're doing this all the time, and and it gets boring very fast once you do that. So using Kahoot! once a week for 15 minutes, that's actually using it appropriately in my mind. Using something else like some uh, math tool that you do repetition on. You would want to use that more often because the repetition is where the benefit is. The daily practice is where the benefit is. For example, my daughter uses Duolingo and is on a 525-day streak right now of using Duolingo. And she's learning Spanish and now she's taking Spanish in school. And she's able to see how those 520 days have benefited her to be able to be successful, but she but she's not using it for an hour every day. She's using it for just five to 10 minutes every day. And there's a difference. So how do you evaluate those things? And what kind of metrics and expectations do you put in place depending on the software or the tool you're using?
2: Well, I think there's there's the first thing that you, you've really um, articulated well there, Jeffra, which is we, you know, EdTech isn't the panacea to everything. Technology is the facilitator. And, and as you've rightly identified there, the effective use of edtech requires the person with the pedagogical knowledge and understanding to recognize what will work best with their teaching with their you know teaching cohort the different students they've got because not every child will respond to the same pattern and weighting to the use of tools most schools come up with their kind of structures whether it's best practice their lesson plans planning around where tools should be just part of the plenary process at the end of a lesson or those that are for strength and repetition and where we're seeing those kind of tools becoming more established again after last 18 months would be the kinds of tools sometimes within the ai category the kind of retrieval practice the personalized learning tools Mm -hmm. and the personalized learning tools are where You want a degree of repetition, but each time based on your answers, it's either stretching you or taking you back a few steps to kind of embed some of that core understanding. In many cases, I'm always really mindful to not try and teach the teachers because the teachers often, I think, the last couple of years have, have, well, in lots of ways, have had a raw deal. But where I've really struggled is where I've seen leadership in big schools or districts who said, we're adopting these tools and you're going to do X, Y, and Z, and this is how many hours a day we expect to be replicating the normal learning day, but online and so on. And you kind of think, actually, first step should be to trust the person that's been in the room with those children every day for the last academic year or more, that they know how best to engage with their cohort, to get the best response from them, and actually trust their professional judgment and skills. We all know there's different tools that are great for that quick Know, feedback loop to provide quick evidence to get um, a quick sense of understanding that can then perhaps split the class whether we need to go back and revisit topics and there are other things where that repetition is kind of key to embedding knowledge but, but I do think within reason the, the, the kind of the, the role is to share the solutions that are out there and I'm very much one that is about you need to empower the classroom teachers to make the decisions about what works best for their school now, there's a, there's a balance here, isn't there? A bit of a yin and a yang, which is what we don't want in every school is a free-form approach by every class teacher that we end up with seven or eight solutions that do exactly the same thing being used in different classrooms because that's not a good way of sharing skills because we're all using different tools. It certainly isn't good from a, an IT support perspective and it obviously has other domino effects. So, so we're back into this thing now, which is we want to empower teachers to make choices But part of that process of making a choice is the peer assess of their colleagues. What are you using? What's worked well for you? So actually understanding how to effectively select the right solutions. And we've seen a whole heap recently, certainly again the last couple of years, where the narratives move to, probably because there's a lot more choice, about evidence-based technology. How do we actually get the evidence to know what really does work versus what looks shiny, shiny? And a large part of that is about You know, let's move beyond the brochure. Let's look at the case studies. If it's pedagogically aligned, then let's look at the independent research if it's appropriate. But more often than not, the bigger one is the peer feedback, either within your district or beyond. You know, that's where social media and other platforms become such a boom to find out whether these tools have benefited other learners around the country or beyond, frankly. And I think all of those kind of come into the practice of it. And so I think we've got to make a fine line between edtech becoming too recipe based in terms of you should use this solution for X minutes or hours and this for that. It is very much a case of let's review, evaluate, agree the right tools that are appropriate for our school or district. Let's lay the toolbox out, make sure there's the appropriate initial professional development and then the ongoing signposting of who to go to if you want to find out more. Build the resource library, but don't duplicate. Make sure it's centrally available so everybody in the district can access it. And then from that, you're empowering teachers to make choices. And some of that hopefully will be discovering tools that others are using that they would have never have known from their silo pre-pandemic.
1: Let me ask you this, Al, in connection with all of this. What or how do you view the role of the students vis-a-vis ed tech? I mean, it seems to me that, for instance, one of the things that might be useful is that often kids have a keener grasp, shall we say, than some educational professionals on how uh-huh. software yes. can be used. And so when I think you're, you're raising this idea of a video explainer, it seems to me there's a real role for students to provide some of that same guidance in education. Obviously, it would need to be appropriately monitored by adults. But but I'm curious. I mean, this ed tech conversation, I think, has to include students as participants, as well as receivers.
2: 100%, Fred. I mean, when I talk about a a school or district building a digital strategy, at the heart of my rather messy Venn diagram with all the stakeholders is teachers and students, because that's what we're all about, ultimately. Um, So with that in mind, I always think when we start talking about the how do we effectively evaluate technology, then student voice becomes critical in that. Because at the end of the day, we're trying to get them to validate whether this is something that helps them engage, helps signpost better, encourages, explains better. And often, you're absolutely right, one of the best learning experiences for any child is to actually get them to train somebody else, to teach somebody else, actually to think through how to explain it to somebody else. And I think we often see it in the in the conversation around younger learners as digital champions within the school that are often really good at b- talking to even younger children about digital citizenship and some of the areas that wrap around that but i think within reason depending on the age of our learners you're absolutely right i always put a little caveat on that which is often i hear a lot of parents and and I sometimes staff talking about you know well digital natives they already know how to use technology and i always put that little caveat Just because you're confident in how to use your smartphone or your Xbox doesn't mean you're confident with the tools the school has selected. Doesn't mean you're confident with how to use the tools correctly and appropriately. And sure as heck, doesn't mean that you're confident to keep yourself safe and understand the implications. Because frankly, as adults, many of us struggle the same. So
1: (laughs) as we demonstrate worldwide every day. Look, I mean, I think the way I've summarized your point there to the parents I speak to is that competence is not the same thing as wisdom or a sense of responsibility. And so even parents who feel technologically challenged or worried about their grasp of technology, they simply need to remember that they have experience and hopefully wisdom that they can pass on to their children about how these tools can be used.
2: Absolutely, and frankly, anything we can foster that involves greater parental engagement with our learners is always gonna be a positive, always.
0: Yeah, and the other thing that I would add, the, the difference between what they call digital natives and digital immigrants is that kids are less afraid to break things, and that's really the big difference, whereas adults are afraid that if they do something wrong, they're going to ruin it and they won't know how to fix it, and that really is, is all that is different in most situations. So,
1: and let's not, and one quick yeah, point, Jethro, let's not lose sight of the fact that digital natives are starting to have kids themselves. That's right. You know, yep. so this, this whole, <laughs> the okay, generation. You're making me thing. feel old now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I have some personal experience with that. So, this is, you know, the, this whole debate, this whole discussion is going to shift right underneath us, which is one of the reasons I am such a big fan of bringing the students into this conversation. Because I do think they've got a lot to add on the topics you're raising. Mm
0: -hmm. I quite agree. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd like to talk about the students and especially the mental health aspects of students and how, Mm. you know, a lot of parents um, are concerned about excessive screen time. And certainly with remote schooling, emergency remote schooling, that's what kids are on Zoom all day long or on Teams all day long. And that's that's challenging. How can we help with the mental health, the addiction aspect of technology and things like that to help it not be a detriment to our kids and instead be something that helps them flourish rather than wither?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a big question, isn't it? I mean, I, I touched on it earlier as a term, and I think a lot of this focuses around digital citizenship and some of the strands that that sit within that. For me, that always comes top of the list uh, and we can perhaps unpick that in a second but I think when we talk about mental health and supporting our learners you know we can, we can start with the simple aspects of during the last eight months of the pandemic where we had learners at home we needed to recognize for our most vulnerable learners it was about routine connectivity with a familiar face support staff teachers at school and so we all adopted whether it was teams or zoom or meet or whatever else it was there was a, an opportunity for schools to try and maintain a degree of routine for those learners that really needed that kind of continuity to give them the, their emotional support. The second part was we always talk about tools in terms of facilitating teacher to learner support, but actually some of the most powerful bits were about allowing the learner to learner collaboration, uh, that kind of peer assessment, peer engagement as part of that, which I think we kind of in education, I think we, we understood that the, the bigger challenges for our learners were, wasn't in reality that kind of lost learning, the catch-up that was needed, but it was more about social, emotional, mental health, the kind of ch- the challenges for our learners. So I think technology plays a role in terms of being the facilitator to, to bring young people together digitally, to allow that continuity of learning from teachers. I think what we always tie into that, which is why I kind of alluded to the digital citizenship, is if we kind of think in the bigger picture, what we're trying to do is empower our, pe- our children with skills, skills is what unlocks the future. Not that I have anything against knowledge, but skills is the thing that really sits high for me. And in order to empower our learners with skills, we need them to understand the implications of their actions online. So whether it's about their digital safety, their footprint, I think we've seen a whole raft of challenges. So it ties in with students' wellbeing, which is about things like the way that young people interact with each other uh, in the UK, Being real challenges with peer to peer online abuse and sexual abuse. And so when we start thinking about one of the challenges that, again, unfortunately applies to adults as well, which I always refer to the digital inhibition, the way we interact with people digitally is is often quite different to the the way we conduct ourselves face-to-face. Understanding and signposting that, setting things that we might take for granted and actually signposting to young people the way that they should conduct themselves, what they say, what the implications of what they say are maybe in the future then thinking about the and making them aware. And again, this is, there's an age progression here about you know, the influences of that kind of echo chamber and how to actually seek out and validate information and what that means. And so much of what young people are exposed to online, whilst we, of course, look at all the fantastic opportunities, has been a real driver in terms of negative well-being. allowing them to understand how to interact or not with that, but also how to validate, how to report concerns, um, is really important. Obviously, technology has underpinned that. If we think in schools and for the US, if we think of the, the SEPA guidelines, technology can provide a role, whether it's in the filtering or the blocking of content that might place young people at the most significant harm. Thinking about technology and tools that allow students to report concerns to a trusted member of staff that provides that mechanism for that proactive digital citizenship, I think they all kind of come together. And if you if you stitch them all together now we start with the kind of the the physiological kind of needs of a child and then the safety and security and we talked about a few we've got that bit about working with their peers and, and fostering peer engagement which I think is important when it comes to having a sense of belonging in your school and that's what a lot of children felt they weren't part of the usual fabric of the school day and all the other activities that wrap around it that's part of their school day if we give them those kind of tools and confidence, you build their self-esteem, and that ultimately is kind of what feeds into that self actualization isn't it, really? It's that sense of – and it's the funny thing, of course, is – and funny is the wrong word – but this is what educators have been doing for, for, de- for decades, centuries. People always think you're there to teach young people knowledge. Well, actually, yes, but – Most educators are there to try and nurture the whole child, to make sure the child has the best possible opportunity in life, never feels like there's any kind of ceiling to their aspirations. That's why I think we've seen post-pandemic, and maybe that's too optimistic to fully say post-pandemic, most of our focus and efforts in school have been around recognising and meeting the challenges from the social, emotional, mental health perspective for our learners, simply because if a child's not in the right place to learn, Why would we think the best starting point is to try and make them learn more? We actually need to get those core building blocks. And it sounds simple, but I don't really care where you are in the world. If you look from a government perspective, all systems are go, catching up, bridging the lost learning, making sure we can fill the void in terms of knowledge ready for the exams of our learners. And whilst we're obligated to do that, everybody who's in education for the right reasons is thinking, actually, for most of our young people, it's about remembering how to learn, tackling some of the challenges they've had at home. They often, the things they've missed most have been the sports, the drama, the collaborative things, the things that you take away when you're 18 or older. Your your recollections of your happiness at school are those kind of landmark moments. They're, they're rarely the score you got in one of your math tests. <laughs> I
0: can
1: assure you that's absolutely true. <laughs> well, you yeah. know, I, I I think this is really, really well said, Al. Uh, you know, I was a classics major in college, and I'm reasonably certain Plato was a big fan of the whole person approach to education. It is an ancient part of being an educator and a teacher. Um, so we should we should be honing that, and we should be pursuing that. I think that's one of the reasons that parents get concerned about the role of ed tech and the amount of screen time as Jethro was alluding to, because it does feel like a diminishment, right, of the whole person in terms of athletics or reading or drama or music or any of these other more interactive forms of education. So that's one of the challenges. I think from the perspective of someone who's been working with Jethro on this concept of cyber ethics, that seems such a core piece of digital citizenship in terms of the kids being able to apply critical thinking and take personal responsibility for their actions in this new landscape. And we're just touching now on the virtual reality and the metaverse and all of these other fever dreams right. of technologists, right? So this is going to be an ongoing challenge. And I, I, I think that the work you're doing, where you're trying to develop clear, cogent Methods for evaluating the effectiveness of what's gone into the classroom is hugely important.
2: I think, um, as you, you good folks, you know, it's an area clearly close to your own hearts as well. I think what we can always recognize is whatever we know now by the time we've realized it that the goalposts have moved, that the, the challenge is, is further down. You touched on the metaverse, you know. I have people say to me, isn't this a fantastic opportunity for educating education? And, and part of me sits and thinks, well, it's a fantastic opportunity if we level the playing field and that children from a deprived background can access a virtual museum and suddenly they can see resources and other things the same as everybody else. But the other half of me looks and thinks, but who's controlling the metaverse? Who's managing and making sure the content is fair and reasonable? Are we actually moving towards Digital equity, or are we going to ex- exaggerate the digital inequality for those that do and don't have access to those extra resources? And so what the one thing that is common is no matter how much the technology scales, it's going to need the humans amongst us to actually be the police, to be the challenge, to be the questioners, to be the, the signposting of the risks, because if we don't, who will?
1: Exactly. I have so many thoughts on that particular topic, Al. We could go another hour. But let me give you one concrete example. I mean, my favorite saying to educators and to parents is it's not about the technology, it's about the behavior. Ultimately, we're responsible for how we use technology. And we can't use technology as an excuse for bad behavior. We weren't tempted into it. It's just, you know, we have to control our impulses. But the concrete example to what you're addressing is when the metaverse was being rolled out within a week they had to create a mandatory buffer zone around the avatars in the metaverse because some characters were inappropriately and offensively touching other avatars instantly like nobody thought this through like it's just remarkable to me so those are the kinds of things that really do make me worried about. And the digital inequality piece is going to be huge because if an Oculus costs $200 a headset, you know, how are we going to roll that out in an equitable way?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I see the opportunity and there's, there's some big assumptions that I make. You know, I make an assumption and I, and I think within a UK context that every school has sufficient funding to have a, a consistent level of equipment for groups across their school, and it's, it's consistent for all schools, that may be wishful thinking. I make an assumption that at some point the government will find ways to standardise affordable access to connectivity for all families across the UK, and for families that are below a level of income, there will be appropriate means to recognise that that is a, a key requirement for every child to have access that should be funded or supported by the state. And I also assume that at some point there will be appropriate funding and resource to train educators to how to utilise those resources in an effective way that will have real value. Now, we're already used to seeing the, you know, the, the VR headsets becoming more more prevalent. In some schools, there are a nod and a, and a nice distraction and something that gets the kids excited. In others, they're becoming embedded in terms of how we deliver particular parts of the um, of the learning journey within an academic year but all those things require equity and if there isn't equity then all we do is we start talking about these amazing resources concerns put to one side that could be available and we suddenly recognize that that will create far greater inequality than the aspiration was that actually we would provide better equality by bringing these resources that many children would never have the the means to travel and see straight to their headset. But like all these things, where there's challenge, there's opportunity, and where there's opportunity, there's always somebody that wants to try and take advantage of it. And I think with everything in technology, I always come back to that bit of, it's about, it's the facilitator. It still requires the human. When we talk about how long a child spends on a tablet, the first question is, but what are they doing? because that's the real measure, not the finite measure of time, but was it productive and useful time? Or was it time that was serving no purpose? And you're right, get outside and play in the fresh air, do something different. Uh, And so I think what we're increasingly learning is technology is a great leverager to allow educators to educate. Technology is not an educator. It it doesn't sit in its splendid isolation as a tool that without supervision, without rules and approaches, is somehow going to replace the role of that human being i don't believe
0: yeah i all said I'm, i'm right there with you and one of my favorite quotes is from heather staker who said that who wrote the book literally on blended learning and she said nobody cares about screen time if it's being used in a productive way The only time we care about screen time is when we're wasting time on a screen. And so if we differentiate between wasted screen time and useful screen time, then we can start to understand what is a good amount of screen time. And the reality is, is these devices are going to be part of our life for a very long time. And we need to be prepared and understand that that's what they're there for. And teaching how to use them appropriately, productively, and for the right reasons is essential to us being effective with them for the rest of our lives and that that starts uh, in the home, in our schools, everywhere that we provide these devices we need to be talking about that and I'm so grateful for you saying that it
2: needs to involve the human aspect, that's, that's really awesome. Could I just ask you one favor, could you stop mentioning people that have written books though? <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yes, sorry about that, Al.
0: <laughs> yeah. So this has been a great conversation. I'm so thankful to you for being here, Al. I think the last thing that I would would ask is we have all of these all of these tools, all of these suggestions that we talked about here. What's the one thing you would tell someone if they said if they came to you and said, "I've I've got all these technologies and all these tools. Where do I start? What's my
2: first thing?" that I need to make sure is happening across my school? The first thing, top of the list, um, and we see it all the time with schools acquiring new technology, is to actually pause and make sure that all of your stakeholders, particularly all of your staff, understand why you've chosen those tools, how they're going to be implemented, and what their purpose is. Too often we see a top-down surprise. You've got this new tool that we've decided to use across our district, and suddenly the staff are expected to figure out the benefit and impact. The second would be always expect to invest a similar amount in professional development as you do in the acquisition of tools It will serve you well. And the third bit of advice is always less is more. Don't try and implement and do too many things too quickly. Do a couple of things. Well, get them embedded. You'll build confidence and you'll actually build support and buy in to do more things in the future. Yeah. Very well said. Excellent.
1: Great conclusion now. Thank you very much. My pleasure. That wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we'll continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, ed tech, privacy, and the challenges of high tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology.
0: You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have topic, question, or guest suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones, Fred is at Cybertraps, and Al is at Al Kingsley underscore EDU. If you're still listening, you must have loved this show. Please leave us a five-star rating and review your podcast or service. We appreciate you having you with us today and look forward to seeing you in our next episode on Monday. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com slash B E.